Hello, and welcome back to episode two of Notes from a Midwest Cowgirl. My name is Grace Piersdorf, and I'm so glad that you are here with me today uh, for this second episode. Um, it's just been a wild start to 2021, but we're here. We made it. It's the first week is behind us, um, so we can just breathe a sigh of relief for that. Um, and while I wish you know, that 2021 will be great and wonderful. Um, we can't just start with a clean slate. It's not that 2020 is gone and behind us and we can forget everything that happened. You know, many of us are exhausted. We're emotionally and mentally drained and we've had a really rough past last year. And I just want to say that your, our mental health is important. And I've realized in myself that it can be harmful to be overly positive and overly just hopeful and just kind of pushing my feelings under the rug, that that can be really toxic for myself. And I just want to acknowledge that there's been a lot of pain, loneliness, and isolation in 2020. And I want you to know that you're not alone in feeling any of these things. I lived by myself uh, for the first seven months or so of the pandemic, and it was hard at times. Um... So I just want to allow us to take a big deep breath together and right now we can just breathe in knowing that we're loved, knowing that community still exists around us even if we're not directly with them right now and breathe in knowing that this year will bring us joy in whatever capacity that may be. I know that to be true. We will have joy and then we can breathe out all of the anger, the pain, the sadness and frustration that we felt. So let's just take a big deep breath in and breathe out. Thanks for doing that with me. I just need to take a moment to ground myself sometimes, especially with the stressors of new year, new me. Um, that often occurs, but I think especially this year after 2020, a lot of us want a fresh start. We want to have a new me. Um, and so we're going to be chatting about just that today in this episode about how often we can compare ourselves at the end of the year or beginning of a new year, how social media can sometimes negatively contribute to that when you're constantly engaging in social media and then how women have taken a hold of these comparisons to shepherd their way into shattering glass ceilings. So without further ado, let's get right into it. So let's just cut to the chase. The new year, new me, you know, that has just been a common thing for many years that we want our resolutions, we want our new goals, we want fresh start, fresh start, let's redo this, I can make changes, adjustments. I'm not hating on resolutions. I just know that they're not for me. And even sometimes goals aren't for me. Um, because I want changes, I want things to be slightly different about, you know, different things in my life, whether that's jobs, um, relationships, you name it, what have you. Um, but I don't think that the new year has to be when you do that. I think it can be any time within a year, whatever month it is, whatever day of the week, whatever time of day it is, I think you can make choices to do that. I don't think New Year needs to be that. 
So I came upon this quote, I was just scrolling on Instagram and came upon this as I was um, researching for this podcast episode. And it's this quote from Sasha Tazi on Instagram. And I thought I just, that it would apply well to today's episode. And it said, perfectionism is shame in action. And I am simply no longer available for that. Wow. Let me just, I'm going to read it one more time. Perfectionism is shame in action, and I am simply no longer available for that. Wow. I just, I love that. I think it kind of reminded me of Brene Brown, and I looked up the quote just to double check um, who said it, and it actually, from what Google said, I couldn't do a deep dive on it. I didn't find that necessarily Sasha Tazi said it, but that's what the Instagram post quoted it as, so I will just for now claim that that is who said it, but it really reminded me of Brene Brown who touches on shame and vulnerability. And if you've never heard of her, oh my goodness, maybe we'll do a podcast episode sometime on her, but I would highly recommend checking out her videos or her Netflix special. Um, But just that idea that we don't need to be perfect. We're not, let's just face it, we're not perfect. We're never gonna be perfect at anything in our lives. And so perfectionism is shame in action. And shame is overwhelming sometimes. And when it's shame in action, it's right in front of you. You're facing it head on. And to say, I am simply no longer available for that. Like you're putting up that boundary. That's important. It's important to say, you know, that's not for me. I'm going to step away from that. That's important to have those boundaries. Because we are not made to be perfect. Um, And I've seen and heard a little bit about this kind of trend manifesting. And I will say I'm not here for that. I'm not here for manifesting. I don't believe you can manifest a new job or weight loss or a boyfriend. I'd just seen a post the other day on a whole bunch of engagement rings, like on different, you know, girls' hands together in a photo. And the caption said, let's manifest this this year. And I just, I don't think manifesting is helpful or good for our brains because it's kind of like you thinking that if you just think about it and if you just kind of believe in it like it'll happen um and I prefer personally to lay out reasonable goals for myself while also allowing myself grace because I'm not perfect other people around me are not perfect and I can't just believe something to be true and it will happen I think hard work goes into a lot of those things, you know, like staying fit at the gym. You can't just manifest it. You have to put in the work. And maybe it's just the way I'm viewing the word manifesting, but I personally am not a fan of that. I think, yeah, hard work needs to occur. Um, And giving yourself grace is important because you can't, if you fail at something or you're not achieving something of where you want to be at, it's okay. Like, You don't have to be there yet. So allow yourself grace, understanding, and forgiveness. And as a woman, I think that's even more important because I found we're usually way too hard on ourselves and other women to be idealizations of, you know, whatever, whether it's the perfect mom or the perfect girlfriend or, you know, having the perfect womanly shape. Like, I don't even know what that is. Our bodies are all different. So... Um, I just think as women, we're really hard on ourselves and we continue to compare ourselves to others, which is not healthy. And Instagram is sometimes a very toxic place. I know I've talked to some of my friends on 
Instagram and we can get so sucked into it. And so just comparing others to ourselves. Um, for me at times, I love Instagram. I, it's probably one of my favorite apps and it can make me feel more creative and connected to others at times, especially during quarantine and the pandemic, just seeing how other people are living their lives, what they're doing to make themselves, you know, feel good with all this chaos going around us. And I do take a lot of creativity from Instagram, but can also be very toxic, allow us to compare our body images, achievements of what others are doing or friendships or even vacations and adventures that people are going on, whether it was pre-COVID or even now, um, and allow us just to see, oh, this person seems really cool. They have it all together. You know, there's Instagram filters or there's Photoshop that I know many people use. Sometimes you see overly whitened teeth and I just, I know that it's not real in that moment, but it's not always what it seems when they post things. Instagram is simply a highlight reel. So when you only see highlights, we can start to believe that, oh, that's what their life looks like all the time. Like it's that great. You know, they're constantly with friends or constantly, you know, they're drinking oh, beautiful coffee and they're, oh, look at their outfits. Like they seem so cool. They have it all together. While we compare our full knowledge of our life, because we know all the ins and outs, all the negative things that go on in our days, and we compare our life to their highlight reel, well, that's not going to ever compare because we don't know the full story about them, about what's going on. And so it can wind into truly a downward spiral. And comparison is so deeply ingrained into our society and culture, and it's really toxic. I think we can allow um, ourselves sometimes we make choices for what we consume, for what we follow, what we give time to, and it's not always the healthiest. I've noticed over the past few years that I've needed to make choices about who I follow on social media because I can just push myself more into a downward, you know, negative spiral if I follow someone that I compare myself a lot to, even though they're not necessarily putting out anything negative. It's not what I need to see and what I need to consume in my day because our time is valuable. And I don't know if we all sometimes believe that. I know I don't always, but our time is valuable. And that includes what we allow ourselves to give time to. So you can choose, you know, how you spend your time, what you look at. So there's... For 2021, I want to continue for myself to relook at that. And I encourage you just to figure out what are you giving yourself time to? What are you allowing yourself um, to be sucked into? So transitioning off of our time as women, as men, as whoever being valuable, um, I actually became intrigued with the term glass ceiling. And when that term kind of started, because I've only been hearing it about it more ooh, probably since high school so probably over the past six years or so I've been hearing that term more um, so I'm intrigued of when that started and how women's positions in the workforce have changed over the last 100 years or so so I'm going to just start us off with a quote I love quotes I love you know actual data so this quote uh, is from equitablegrowth.org, and the article I took the quote from was written by Elizabeth Jacobs and Kate Bond. So they wrote, 
For women in the U.S., labor force participation rates have not followed a straight path. It has been a complicated narrative, deeply affected by women's family roles, by discrimination, by the changing economy, by technological change, and by their own choices. So that just kind of will kick us off into this conversation of women in the workforce, the term glass ceiling. So let's just first dive into history. I think that gets us all kind of uh, a good basis for what we're going to be talking about. So the term glass ceiling, and this, I will just say that I've taken these sources and put them below in the show notes if you're curious where I've gotten this information from. So glass ceiling is a metaphor used to represent an invisible barrier that prevents a given demographic, typically minority, from rising above a certain level of hierarchy. The metaphor was first coined by feminists in reference to barriers in the careers of high-achieving women. So what I could find was that in 1839, there was a French feminist and author, George Sand, and they used a similar phrase. I'm going to butcher this, so um, just we're going to move on with the French pronunciation, but basically, un vot de cristal impenetrable. Almost sounded German there, but it was translated to an impenetrable crystal vault, like a glass ceiling. And then moving forward over 100 years, the first person said to actually use the term glass ceiling was Marilyn Laden during a 1978 speech. And so the ceiling was defined as discriminatory promotion patterns where the written promotional policy is non-discriminatory, but in practice denies promotion to qualified females. So basically that's saying... In the written promotional policy of promotion patterns, there it's not stated that it's discriminatory, right? But actually in practice, it denies promotion to qualified females. So she was addressing that and used the term glass ceiling. And then go forward about 10 years, it was a widely cited article in the Wall Street Journal in March of 1986. The term was used in the article's title, The Glass Ceiling. Why women can't seem to break the invisible barrier that blocks them from the top jobs. So just to recap, it was the early 1800s, and it was generally discussed by a French feminist, but then became more widely known and talked about in the 70s and 80s in the United States, which in some ways, 70s, 80s doesn't seem that long ago for me. Like, obviously, women in general, we've, we've been around for quite a while. We've lived lives, we've done things, what have you. And so, of course, the public responded with differing ideas and opinions to these articles coming out in the 70s and 80s. And some argued that the concept was a myth because women choose to stay home and show less dedication to advance in executive positions, which just got me chuckling a little bit because, for my own opinion, if that was the norm for women to stay home, raise their families, um, and the social expectations would be that they would just stay home. Does that truly represent their actual choice of what they want? Just because it is what society says does not mean that is truly what is wanted. So I just had to just breathe when I first read that, that, oh yeah, women totally all just wanted. But I'm not saying that some women did not feel comfortable. And, you know, I'm sure some women said, yes, I like being home, like raising my family, That was what was comfortable for them. But I don't think that was all women. So then jumping forward a few more years to 1991, as a part of Title II of the Civil Rights Act of 1991, 
the United States Congress created the Glass Ceiling Commission, which I had never heard about before. And it was created to study the barriers to the advancement of minorities and women within corporate hierarchies. So the commission conducted extensive research, and it included surveys, public hearings, and interviews, and they released their findings in a report in 1995. And the report was called Good for Business, and it offered tangible guidelines and solutions on how these barriers can be overcome and eliminated. The goal of the commission overall was to provide recommendations on how to quote-unquote shatter the glass ceiling, specifically in the world of business. And the report issued 12 recommendations on how to improve the workplace by increasing diversity in organizations and reducing discrimination through policy, which, you know, there's it, policy is good, policy is fine, but there's also the um, inner workings of kind of a mini society within organizations and businesses. So after doing my own research, because this was a great, you know, quick fact Gotcha. I'm glad they did that, but I wanted to learn a little bit more. I dove into my research and found that it was actually a 257-page document, which is a lot. And um, I'm sure generally in Congress, things are very long, so it makes sense. Um, And the commissioners of the report included five men and 16 women. Thought that was great. And they claimed that within the report that it was an appropriately diverse body in terms of ethnicity, gender, and political affiliation. And I didn't dive more into double-checking that, but I'm assuming that that is correct. And I didn't necessarily find direct 12 direct recommendations when I was looking through this 257-page document. Of course, there was um, an index for me to look through. But the section of characteristics on successful programs was the closest thing I could find, and they listed... And they, of course, had way more details, a lot of paragraphs under each of these headers, but they had that um, successful programs include having CEO support. They are specific to the organization. They are inclusive. They address preconceptions and stereotypes. They emphasize accountability. They track progress. And they are comprehensive. And I had never heard about this report before, but overall, I think it was a really good thing to happen. It's interesting. Um, But let's just double back to the year on that. So that was 1995. So about 26 years ago, which to me doesn't seem that long ago. I was born the year after that. Um, But there was something being done by the federal level on this, which I think is important and good. But women were in the workforce long before this glass ceiling commission as a part of the Civil Rights Act of 1991 occurred. And the reason why I chose to talk about this today is I became curious about women in the workforce after learning more about my great-grandma. And she was a nurse in the early 1900s, which I'll dive into a little more. But let's just first talk about the history of women in the workforce in the United States. So in the early 1900s, most women in the U.S. did not work outside of the home. So that's little more than 100 years ago, and those who did were primarily young and unmarried. In that era, just 20% of women were quote-unquote gainful workers. This does not mean that the rest of the women were just mothers and wives, but they also assisted with family business, family farms, etc., that sort of um, small local scale at home. And black women were twice as likely to participate 
participate in the labor force after marriage as white women were. They were twice as likely, which just thinking of my own knowledge, you know, I'm sure that's due to cultural norms, due to economic reliability on women in those communities, um, just with discrimination and having to work due to economic needs. So women often left work after marriage. And like I said, way more white women left work after marriage. And most women during that time in the early 1900s lacked significant education. It wasn't normal for them to sometimes even finish through high school or go on past that. And to give this context to myself, my great-grandma was born in 1900, in the year of the turn of the century. And in early adulthood, she became a nurse at a local hospital. And I learned that she continued to work after marriage. And I'm not sure if there was a break when having kids. I'm guessing there probably was. But when my grandma was alive, she would pick up my great-grandma after her nursing shift was over, which I thought was really cool to learn. Um, just because that's really awesome that my great-grandma was a nurse, worked, and um, was one, one of those women that was pioneering working after marriage. And my great-grandmother on the other side of the family, she also worked later after she was married. And I know that even in her 80s, she was working, um, I think, as a well-known waitress of some sort at a prestigious building um, in the area where I grew up. And then on the other side of my family, my grandma worked during World War II as essentially Rosie the Riveter, you know, with the arm, the fist, and the red bandana um, and the blue jean, I think, colored shirt. And so she was essentially Rosie the Riveter in her early 20s. And she worked at a factory nearby to assist with war machinery. And that was new information to me as of this past weekend, which I was floored that that's just incredible. I knew she did some more office secretarial work later in life. And that was after getting married. But I think she took a break um, when she had children. But that was really awesome just to know that in her 20s, so she was born, well, it was during World War II. She was in her early 20s working as essentially Rosie the Riveter. That was really exciting to learn. So by 1950, nearly 50% of single women and 12% of married women were in the workforce, which is awesome for the single women that nearly 50% were, but only 12% of married women were in the workforce by 1950. And this overlapped with the so-called first wave women's movement, and women came together for a change on a variety of social issues from suffrage and temperance, which I looked up to be the limiting or outlaw of alcohol. And so this social change culminated in the ratification of the 19th Amendment in 1920, which guaranteed women the right to vote. So there was a little bit more going on during that time frame. But then came the quiet revolution from late 1970s to very early 21st century. And the percentage of women of childbearing age with a child under the age of one in the workplace rose dramatically from 20% to 62%. So that's basically saying women, whether they're married or unmarried, have a child under the age of one, that that percentage went from 20% to 62%. So women were allowing themselves to go into the workplace. It was becoming more societally acceptable. 
And so this meant that women were envisioning long careers while still having children and not allowing their workforce uh, participation to get cut short by having kids. And this was a relatively new concept in the United States. Women were investing more in their education with increasing more of them going to college and beyond. This was just kind of a, like they said, quiet revolution. Things were changing. Things were going on. And during this time, my parents and my aunts and uncles, they were coming up into the workforce. And I was learning um, the other week that when my aunt got married, I think it was about in the 70s or so, it was still expected from, from society that women getting married were to quit their jobs. That was still expected during that time. Which, um... I don't know. I just never thought that still during that time frame that that would occur. But I also was not alive then, so I don't really have things to go off of besides just what I've learned in history classes and whatnot. So just a quick side tangent, but I also learned that my grandmother, um, who was Rosie the Riveter, she had five kids from about the 1940s to 1960. And she never breastfed because it was looked down upon in society, which is insane to me that right from birth, babies would take bottles and I learned received injections to make sure they would develop well, Um, which I don't know. That's something that's never came up in any class of mine. But yeah, I guess that never, that wasn't societally acceptable, which makes sense because women have just been held to such high standards for so long. Um... But anyways, we're going to enter now into the early 2000s. You know, things are different. Women are in the workforce. Well, suddenly the advances in women's labor force stopped. The rate flattened and declined, though it is a small decline. It's not saying women in the labor force, of course, stop, but it's the advances of women's labor force. The number of women CEOs in the fortune list has increased between 1998 and 2020, despite women's labor force participation rate decreasing globally from 52.4% to 49.6% between 1995 and 2015. So while the number of CEOs on the fortune list, they have increased since 1998, but overall women's labor force participation globally has decreased. And only 19.2% of S&P 500 board seats were held by women in 2014, and 80% of whom were considered white. So even though women have, you know, gotten to better positions um, and gotten into higher offices in S&P 500 board seats, there's only 19% of those seats are filled by women. And it's still to look at you know, where are Black, Indigenous, people of color coming into that space? And they were only 80%, 80, not only 80%, I'm saying that's a lot, 80% of whom are considered white in 2014. And I don't know how in the past six or so years how that's changed. I'm hoping there's been more diversity in that area, but I couldn't find necessarily any um, facts directly correlating to that. And another thing is that women in most corporations encompass below 5% of board of directors and corporate officer positions. Below 5% overall. That's sad to me. I think women need to be in those spaces. Women have their voices. They have opinions. They have thoughts. And they're intelligent beings. 
So women still have a long ways to go. That glass ceiling can still be shattered in many ways. But I will say it is incredible to see today many women and Black, Indigenous, people of color serving in the Senate, in the House of Representatives, as the future vice president. Shout out to Kamala Harris. Um, As CEOs and executives in large businesses, to small business owners, and women of all backgrounds doing it all. I am incredibly proud of the women who have made their voices heard for generations. I mean, just thinking back to my grandmas and my great-grandmas and all of the generations before that, um, and for the the men that supported the women so that women today can be working moms or women running their own businesses or that women can be in the second highest office in the United States. But we are not done working, and I know there will be even more amazing glass ceilings that women will shatter in the coming generations. So I'll leave you with this. Let's continue to pave the path for young women, for young Black, Indigenous, and people of color. And that looks different from for all of us, depending on what our background is and what we can do. We only can do, you know, one sort of thing because of what our background is. So let's just celebrate all that has been done and all that will be done. So thanks so much for joining me on today's episode, and feel free to check out the show notes below for some sources from facts and quotes that I use. I want to make sure that I'm citing my sources, as well as my social media pages, and I hope you can find some light in today, you know, whatever that be, whether it's small or large, I just hope that you can find some joy and light in today, and I hope that you're able to join me next time. 